Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. There's a lot of things going on. Obviously, a big BFD down in Georgia where we have the Fulton County Grand Jury subpoenaing Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, and a Trump campaign lawyers. So just keep your eye on that. Also, we're getting this report out of Washington that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is finally moving on some sort of reconciliation package, which they are now calling Build Back Mansion. We don't know what the details are. Who knows how that is going? But obviously, we have a lot to talk about today, and we are very, very fortunate to have uh, as as our guest A.B. Stoddard, uh, Associate Editor and Columnist at Real Clear Politics. A.B., thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Great to be with you, Charlie. Well, you have an Enfuego piece in the bulwark today. Um, you, you and I both are, are talking about, you know, folks on the left, whether or not they are actually rising to the moment, whether they really believe that we face an existential crisis or whether or not they want to go back to politics as usual and cannibalize one another. So <laughs> can we just start with all of this? Your piece is headlined, Can Democrats Find Their Fear and Rage? So really, we need more fear and rage? Seriously, Abby? Because I think we're kind of like full on that, but apparently not. (laughs) No, I mean, Charlie, those of us who have been following all this really closely have known since Joe Biden became the president-elect certified, at least by the media, on uh, Saturday, November 7th of 2020, that things have steadily gotten worse. And I think while the rest of the, of the country that's not a politically addicted or not in the business of following this wanted to put their head under their pillows and believe that Trump was gone and everything was fine, we are in much more danger than we ever could have imagined. And so as we at the Bulwark and elsewhere fret about this and try to bring together different disparate parts of this coalition to sort of read on the same page in terms of the threat, Democrats are still lost in purity tests and bitterness over the progressives failing in the 2020 nominating contest and their letdown over Joe Biden, you know, not being enough of a a warrior for the priorities of the left, the failure because they have no Senate majority and a three or four seat House majority to pass a massive social spending plan and police reform and voting reform. And they seem, after the news of the court's ruling on Roe, several more horrific mass shootings, of course, only three or four that we've talked about in the news are, you know, only three or four of a hundred, I guess, in the last month, and the explosive revelations of the January 6th committee to still be stuck in this posture where they want the perfect and they're telling the base why they should be depressed and let down instead of saying, you should fear a Republican majority and you should be angry at a court that rules against the majority of the country and to speak to the base in stark terms about where we're headed. They just still seem to be somewhere with an Excel um, spreadsheet trying to get down to their policy perfection agenda that is not passable, that they don't have the math for. And they're criticizing Joe Biden for not meeting the moment, but they just don't seem to be mad and they don't seem to be afraid. And for those of us who are, it's it's just stunning to me. See, you, you, had, you, had, you had a great line in, in this piece. You, you would think that the end of Roe versus Wade would unite Democrats, but the response to that has been Democrats getting mad at other Democrats. They're 
you know, yeah. demanding the end of the filibuster, which is not going to happen, you know, packing the court, which is not going to happen, um, pop up abortion clinics in national parks, which I think is highly unlikely. <laughs> and they, they say B- Bernie Sanders, for instance, um, has not been principally concerned the Supreme Court would overturn Roe and that same-sex marriage could be next, or that the big lie Republicans across the country have been nominated after campaigning on promises to steal the next election. Instead, Sanders has been most focused on criticizing his own party for turning its back on the working class. You know, this this really, you know, struck me because, you know, over the last year, that first year of Biden's presidency, when you think about the amount of psychic and political energy the Democrats spent on attacking other Democrats, the amount of vitriol aimed at Joe Manchin. I understand the frustration. Joe Manchin in Kirsten Cinema, And all the Republicans are sitting back and they're eating popcorn because the Democrats have been pounding on one another. And as you point out, with all of these catastrophic things going on right now, you would think that that would coalesce Democrats to recognize the threat. If it's not the threat of Donald Trump. It's the threat of, you know, mass American carnage or, you know, what the Supreme Court might do uh, with state legislatures. But no, they are much more uh, in, intent on on attacking one another. And I mean, that and that seems to be the overwhelming. I'm looking at the headlines in the Washington Post right now. And as some Democrats grow impatient, well, here's one headline. Um, here's one. Frustrated at, at Biden's caution, some Democrats deliver a more fiery response to GOP tactics. Um, even Jennifer Rubin, Democrats can't rely on Biden if he doesn't rhetorically meet the moment. So there's all of this energy attacking one another. It, it is kind of extraordinary, isn't it? It is. And they are they're also failing to acknowledge that this is the month when the campaign could change. The dynamics are different. It's not a promise that they will. It's not a guarantee that these new dynamics and new energy will help them hold the House or the Senate. But things are changing. Nate Silver believes, you know, at this point, and again, that could change, but that the marquee governor's races in Wisconsin, Michigan, Mm -hmm. and Pennsylvania favor the Democrats. That The Senate, if if the election were held today, would likely be Democrat. They're seeing in the generic ballot movement all of these indicators that should hearten them. And they see that the issues of the January 6th hearings and the revelations from them and that the, that the decision on Roe v. Wade and Dobbs has broken through. And they have this opportunity to bring into the fold voters who might have sat the election out. And those voters would come in for the issues I'm describing and highlighting, not because of inflation. So you might not be able to stop the inflation or crime or immigration voter, but instead of a massive red wave, which is what we've anticipated now for a year, with the numbers getting increasingly worse, we're now seeing people getting mad at the court, people getting mad at the Republican Congress, at the Republican abettors of Donald Trump, at what they're hearing happened, not only on January 6th, but the two months before. I mean, a a real description of a coup plotted by hundreds of people over two months' time And this is an opportunity to talk to the public about those issues, about the theft of the next election, how Doug Mastriano and candidates like him, you know, across the Republican Party across the country are telling us what they would do to steal the next election. 
this is the ground on which they should wage the battle. And yeah, it's great news for Democrats if they could actually get a prescription drug measure through the Senate, through reconciliation. That would be really amazing at this point, weeks to the August recess, after which there are only weeks till the election in terms of legislative time. But if they can't count on that, they have to meet the moment, which unfortunately is culture war stuff that's super resonant and is making the middle of the country, the middle of the electorate angry. That middle of the electorate is all they have to mitigate losses this fall. If they don't talk to them instead of the base, they're going to lose badly. Well, as you start out your piece, you know, the past few days and weeks have made perfectly clear, even to those who had tried tuning it all out after Trump lost, just what Republicans would do with power. You know, you have the, you know, the the possibility that raped and pregnant young girls have to cross state lines for an abortion, a coup against our government led by a president eager to send a mob he knew was armed to threaten the vice president and members of Congress, a Supreme Court that is, you know, rather consequentially ruling on um, guns, abortion, and climate change. The attorney general of Texas admitting that he would welcome the return of anti-sodomy laws. But this is the buzz you're getting that the party's base is unmoved because it's too much to expect their voters to turn out in November because there is that sense that Biden's first half of his term has been a failure. And you quote Cori Bush a very progressive uh, Democratic congresswoman saying, we can't just tell people, well, just vote your problems away because they're looking at us saying, well, we already voted for you because apparently the argument is without delivering on voting rights, police reform and revolutionary social welfare programs, then the answer is for voters to just stay home and help elect Republicans. It is is an odd flex uh, by some members of the Democratic Party right now. It's like, guys... You have this moment. Are you going to seize it or are you going to, you know, basically go in your corner and, you know, and scratch your priors or whatever? It's stunning. As I said, the idea that they can go back to all these measures that they failed that you listed, um, things that are politically untenable, and just what are they going to do with all these new promises that they're not going to be able to keep just disappoint the base again? I mean, (laughs) the best thing to do is to tell the base, if you can't take time out of your day, the weeks before the election or the day of November 8th to vote against these Republicans, there will be more of them. And this is what you're going to get, you you know, same sex marriage and birth control will be next, you know, Hunter Biden's a two year probe of him and impeachment of Joe Biden, no hope of codifying Roe. This is what's coming. I mean, it's very, very clear that the girl who was able to leave Ohio and go to Indiana for an abortion who had been raped and who's 10 She's lucky, right, Charlie? There will be states without rape and incest exceptions. And we are only beginning to understand the post-Roe landscape. And the fact that they are talking to Joe Biden and White House staff instead of talking to the American electorate about this is just bizarre. Okay, we are with A.B. Stoddard looking over the political landscape and wondering, like, guys, do you understand the stakes of the moment, the existential challenge that you face, that democracy faces, what could happen? Um, Are you going to fight with one another? Are you going to do something about it? So you mentioned that Democrats could embrace the culture war on, on, on abortion. They could unite their coalition. They could divide the Republican Party. So I guess my first question is, why is Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer not putting legislation on the floor this week, 
for example, reaffirming Griswold, the, the right to contraception. Make Republicans vote on that. Why aren't they putting up legislation that would codify same-sex marriage? Put it on the floor, make Republicans vote on this. Why not put on the floor legislation that would very specifically codify exceptions for rape and incest? Make Republicans vote on all of that. That's kind of what you're talking about, right? So why are they not doing that? This is the eternal mystery. (laughs) Charlie, we've discussed here several times what I think a bust Chuck Schumer's tenure as majority leader has been, but he takes no blame. All the heat's always on Biden or Pelosi and the squad and what's going on on the House side. And, you know, we talked last time about the fact that he put up a radical bill that the Republicans could easily vote against that was allowed, you know, nine month abortions. And he didn't work with Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, um, who were trying to put up, wanted to put up a bill to codify Roe. And that should be the the goal, as you said, you know, make Republicans vote on all these things the majority of the country supports. Isn't it like 6% of Texas Republicans or some terrible stat I heard from you and Will having a conversation who who don't approve of rape and incest exceptions in Texas? I mean, this is this is an extremely radical position, even among the Republicans themselves. So so the goal should be to divide the Republican Party and put all of these popular things up and make them vote on them. And also, you know, they should just try to codify Roe. You know, they want everything. But Manchin did say he would vote to codify Roe. He said it right after the Supreme Court ruled on Dobbs. So why not just do that? And then, you know, you make the case, you put the Republicans in the hot seat and you make the case to the country that you need to elect more Democrats. But that's what the focus should be on. And I'm not saying they shouldn't, you know, get a bill to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. It would be enormously popular. But instead of just, you know, whatever they're doing, asking the president to use federal lands to put Planned Parenthood outposts, they they really should be making a huge case um, in the Senate. And I think they should be having hearings, high profile hearings about just what these changes are doing to these communities. There are tons of families who are going to be affected by this. And Charlie, you've had very, very measured, very, very thoughtful conversations. And you've written on this issue in a very powerful way, coming from your perspective with your powerful story. (laughs) These rulings are going to affect everyone. There are going to be women and teenagers worried about their period tracking apps and whether they should delete them. Families who are planning to have children through in vitro fertilization, as I once did, this is not just about abortions. And so this is an opportunity for the party to broaden the conversation, and they're just missing it. Well, they're missing it in part because I'm not sure that they figured out what their message is going to be either about all of this. And, and and you're absolutely right. I think the politics of it will be determined by which side is able to cast the other side as the more extreme. And, you know, obviously you have a lot of Republicans who are taking extreme positions, but there are Democrats who struggle with this as well. Um, you know, we remember, you know, the former governor of Virginia, you know, Ralph Northam, who seemed to suggest at one point that it would be between a mother and her doctor what would happen if a child you know, had survived an abortion or something like that. I mean, or 
others who have trouble saying, well, would you draw the line, you know, at five minutes before birth? Look, these are, should be easy questions to answer, but they're not. And I wonder whether Chuck Schumer, you know, in his inability to come up with these narrowly cast bills, feels that he's held hostage by the absolutist position, just like I think Republicans will be held hostage by their absolutists come next year, right now in some state legislatures. Yeah, I see it as the is just basically a mirror of Republicans' position on guns. You know, their constituents and their neighbors are telling them that they don't want 18-year-olds, you know, who don't have a fully formed, you know, frontal cortex to have ARs, Jesus. but they take an absolutist position on the rights of gun owners. And so they don't give an inch on gun safety reforms because, you know, you have to have it all and you can't it's a slippery slope. You know, that's the cliche. You can't give an inch. And so clearly Chuck Schumer is hostage to the absolutist position. And that's why he put that dumb bill up, which can, you know, be described as infanticide. Most Americans well, and the Democrats know it are happy at a ban starting at 15 or 20 weeks, but they want mm-hmm. first term abortion to be legal. And if the Democratic Party would embrace that, they would have, you know, they would win over a lot more um, supporters and they would divide the Republican Party. So let's talk about the terror that Americans feel right now. I'm looking at a headline in, in the video in the Washington Post right now. Nothing feels safe. Americans are divided, anxious, and quick to panic. And it's videos of what happened at uh, at, at various July 4th celebrations, um, not just where there was the massacre in Highland Park, but others where there were shootings and crowds just running in downtown Orlando, uh, Philadelphia, you know, center city neighborhood, you know, people running in panic. There is real panic. There is real terror and fear about these mass shootings. And yet when I turn on television, the only party that is really pushing the question of crime and violence are the Republicans who are pounding and pounding and pounding away at rising crime rates in the cities. And that the Democrats have not figured out how to turn this around and say, you are the party that wants to put these, you know, AR-15s in the hands of people like Awake the Rapper or whatever. But they need to do this because otherwise the whole issue of crime and violence will be taken over by the party that has been opposed to any sort of common sense gun regulation. I absolutely agree with you. They have shut down on the issue of crime, refused refused to take it seriously, uh, ceded the political advantage in doing so to the Republicans. And it's a powerful one. People want to feel safe in their neighborhoods. They don't. They don't feel safe in their neighborhoods that are safe, even when they, you know, learn about what's happening to their friends and their relatives and their neighbors, because the crime is on the rise and it is extremely frightening. And there is a, a sense of lawlessness in these in many of these cities and suburbs, but particularly just watching the, the, you know, the backlash in San Francisco and other liberal pockets, it's amazing. How more clear can the message be to Democrats, office holders, that this is unacceptable? And then they can't find the high ground on guns to sort of paint Republicans as the party who is standing in the way of law and order and standing in the way of personal security and safety, because they've ignored this issue. It was hard for Joe Biden to get to this year's State of the Union a whole year into his first term to say the words fund the police 
it might have come a little too late. He has called for more funding of law enforcement. He has. He has said we're not going to defund the police, but he doesn't say it often enough, and he doesn't address the real fear in this country, as you describe, about rising crime. And it affects their base. It affects working class uh, voters, um, non-white. They are increasingly voting with Republicans because of their fear for their personal security. They want more police in their neighborhoods. And um, it's a serious failure of the Democrats. In the flip side, though, as as you point out in your piece in the Bulwark today, that it's not far-fetched to think that some swing voters will be scared to put Republicans in charge again after they learn, if they are if they ever learn, the Republicans not only abetted Trump um, in his coup attempt, but uh, that worked so hard to help steal the election that they asked for pardons themselves. And and you quote uh, Democratic pollster Simon Rosenberg saying political analysts were overly discounting the ugliness of the GOP's offering this year. And I guess that's the big question. And you and I have talked about this before. We know what the rules used to be in politics, where if somebody was really crazy or said bizarre things, they would be disqualified. This year, we're unclear, right? I mean, in any other year, Herschel Walker would be dead man walking. Dr. Oz would not have a shot. Nobody would seriously think that Eric Reitens would be going to the United States Senate. And so, so far, Republicans have not paid a price for the sedition, the crazy, the bigoted, the just whatever. But there's a real possibility that they could. And the question is whether or not Democrats will be able to seize that moment. I mean, that's your whole point, isn't it? Right. I think that you want to always focus on each party has to energize their base. I'm obviously not a member of either party, so I, I don't think this way. But after they've energized their base, they need to win swing voters. And that's why you see Mitch McConnell, you know, voting for the gun bill, the first serious, you know, gun reform in 30 years, because he's a little worried about the Senate now. And he's trying to show those swing voters that he's not a Trumpkin and he's rational. The swing vote is what put Biden in office. And um, I think appealing to those people, appealing to their anger over the, 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 the court and then appealing to their fear of insurrectionists and coup plotters and Donald Trump and the big lie and election subversion in the future is really critical because as Simon notes, the biggest movement that produced record turnout uh, against MAGA in, in 2018 and 2020 can rise again. Yeah. yeah you know, the, if the right elements are in place and the month of June has certainly put them in place. Uh, and as I note, look, I have people in my life. I know people who stopped following the news after Trump lost. Right. But this stuff in the last three, four weeks, this is penetrating. You don't have to watch the hearings. It's mm. coming across your social media feed. You know what happened to Dobbs and to Roe, you you know what I mean? Even the people who are not tuning in and following this, they know all this now. And in their communities on the ground level, they will know more and more what's happening mm-hmm. to women and teenagers and and families, you know, trying to have children through, you know, in vitro and all these different aspects of it, right? So I think that there is a new dynamic and Simon makes the case that this is a different election now. He's probably right that the the abortion question particularly becomes worse for Republicans as we look to September and then November, as Mm -hmm. these communities learn more. And I think that the 1-6 revelations will obviously get worse as well. And so there is a coalition of disaffected and former Republicans, independent, moderate, swing voters, women, 
who can actually get really angry and turn out? And that is the big question. Breaking news while you and I were have been uh, speaking, there is uh, a deal for former White House counsel Pat Cipollone to testify on Friday in a transcribed interview per persons briefed on the matter. That is from the New York Times. And of course, uh, there's been a lot of focus on Pat Cipollone, who literally held the job that John Dean held during Watergate. And apparently he has agreed to sit down and testify. I think one of the things that one of the main takeaways that I had from Cassidy Hutchinson's amazing testimony from last week is how central Pat Cipollone is to telling this story. So that would suggest that the January 6th committee is uh, has not only broken through at least somewhat, but uh, that there is a lot more to come. Your, your thoughts? Yeah, Charlie, after watching Cassidy Hutchinson, I can remember when the hearing ended and she went to leave the room and then the committee members were hugging her. And I got so upset just thinking, this is, of course, before any Tony Ornato, mm-hmm. anyone coming out and trying to dispute um, what she said had hit the wires. But I became so upset about her life, you know, how, where this has come to, how hard people would be working to disparage her, to intimidate her. I just knew the second the hearing ended that this poor woman is, is going to be a hunted woman, right? And the next thing I thought well, of was bingo. just how mad I was <laughs> at Pat Cipollone. You know, just man up, Pat. Now, I get that these people need to be able to tell, you know, MAGA world that they were subpoenaed and they had no choice, but he had no choice after what she told us, but to step in and talk. He had no choice. It has to happen. And we learned that he was on the right side. You know, he was a good guy. He wasn't a Mark Meadows. He was trying to stop this. Well, to an extent. His advice and counsel was, we will be charged with every crime imaginable, which I said on MSNBC in a fit of peak last week, is my new favorite racehorse name. I really want someone to try to bring every crime imaginable to the Derby next year. So (laughs) it's time for Pat to man up. I'm glad he's going to. Of course, he couldn't do it in public, but we need the answers from him. This is the big question is whether or not any of this makes a difference, because so far we haven't seen much movement in the polls. We have not seen many Republicans say things publicly. I thought it was interesting. I mean, I, I think one of the more deplorable characters, you know, uh, has been, uh, you know, Mick Mulvaney, who was acting chief of staff, who belatedly jumped ship. But now he's kind of scrambling back saying, hey, guys, um, you know, pointing out he wrote a piece for the Charlotte uh, News Observer pointing out an important point, which is that all of this important testimony is coming from Republicans and that perhaps Republicans should pay attention to other Republicans who are saying that the election was not stolen um, and other Republicans who are saying that the president's behavior, former president's behavior was unhinged, deranged and seditious. So maybe there's a little bit more of a willingness to speak out on this. But so far, it's been relatively you know, muted. What do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, their silence says it all. If you listen to anyone um, from Christy Nome on CNN on Sunday to uh, anyone who's asked about this, they have a, the talking points they got from the RNC and they all go to the same ones. Yeah. Well, it's just so unfortunate. The hearings are so one sided and we just haven't, you know, this type. And then there was hearsay, which is just the one part of her testimony of course, um, that people questioned and no one has come under oath to actually dispute. So um, 
Mick Mulvaney is is really not you know covering himself in glory. He absolutely knows, even when he says maybe they should you know listen to these people because they're Republicans. The minute you cross Trump, you're no longer a Republican. You're a rhino, you know, squish loser, America last, you know, fart bag. Basically, you're not. These people are not credible to Ron Johnson or Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley just. He doesn't have time to watch the hearings. He he's not, you know, it's just so busy. Everything is so damaging and so awful that's coming out of the committee findings that they 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 cannot respond. And so I think what we are hoping, you know, people like you and me is that Mitt Romney will wait until the end, you know, that there will be certain people that wait until the very end and who will actually speak truthfully about what they learned after the last hearing and the last report. Well, I hope it's more than Mitt Romney because Mitt Romney has done this in the past. I mean, it's got uh, – see, I, I wonder whether there's something else going on though is that is that we're looking for people to, to speak out publicly and we've you know been frustrated over the last five years about all of that. But there does seem to be a growing sense – uh, among Republicans that, you know, maybe we ought to move on from all of this. I think it's very interesting that Sarah Longwell is picking up a vibe from her focus groups yes. that, that not, not only do um, Trump voters not want him to run again, but they're actually making a rather sophisticated analysis that, you know, if Trump runs, you have this elderly disgraced guy who gets you know, a maximum of four years in office. Whereas if you go with somebody else, you might get somebody who is younger, smarter, more competent, and then you get eight years in office. So I wonder if there's a move sort of below the surface, you know, even in MAGA world saying, yeah, this guy's damaged goods. Could we move on? And I look, I, I, I do not engage in any sort of irrational exuberance or wish casting, but it would seem to be completely, well, I was going to say completely irrational. So let's say even more irrational than we've gotten used to, to not think that maybe it's time to turn the page. What do you think? Right. I think that he is damaged goods and they know that. They know how bad all of this stuff is that the committee has revealed. And so instead of saying this is really bad because they never will, they are saying, I mean, that's a cute rationalization. Yeah, you do get more four years, but basically they're saying we need a winner and Trump will lose. And we, we think he'll lose now. And that's a sign. But, you know, I think that what we've always wanted is for them to defend their oath and turn about face to the electorate and say he's been a danger to the system and we can't elect people like that again. And that's what they'll never say because they're complicit. So I devoted my whole newsletter today to um, this. This feels like it's a related theme. I have been like many Americans have been blown away by the courage and the clarity of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who have been willing to say that. But interestingly enough, there are still folks on the left who are more concerned about purity than fighting this existential challenge, who are more interested in hunting heretics than they are in creating allies. So there is a, there's a rather concerted effort on least uh, progressive Twitter, you know, guys like, you know, author, filmmaker Don Winslow to vilify Liz Cheney, because it turns out, believe it or not, uh, A.B., uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are conservatives. They are pro-life conservatives. They are Republicans. They both voted with Trump. They disagree with progressives on spending, policing, energy policy. I mean, this is known. And apparently, if you scour the record, you find them engaging in highly partisan rhetoric. I mean, 
Cheney was before she was, you know, defenestrated. She was in GOP leadership. But this is the nature of these temporary emergency alliances. And, you know, the point that I try to make is, look, if if we are facing this existential threat to democracy, the, the threat that you document in your piece, then the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But you have a lot of these folks on the left who've decided that the enemy of my enemy is also my enemy if they don't agree with me on all of these other issues. In other words, we're going to treat Trump's crimes as a unique existential threat until we don't, right? Um, and and there, there's, it is interesting that, you know, how, you know, once again, at the moment when we ought to all be united in absolute horror at the criminal conspiracy led by the president of the United States, that some folks on progressive Twitter have decided this is the moment to say, yes, but you can't admire Liz Cheney because we disagree with her on the abortion issue. And so here we're at exactly where we started with your piece. Like, are you going to cannibalize this coalition or are you going to focus on the actual threat we face? Partisans who put their party before the threat to democracy or putting their party before their country and they don't understand the threat and they don't get it. I'm not a member of their party. I'm not a partisan Republican or Democrat, so I don't have partisan fever. This is crazy. I mean, this is like liberals saying to me in 2017, when, you know, a special counsel began looking into Donald Trump, what if, I mean, what if something happens to him? And we would end up as, with Pence as president. I would say we would be lucky to have Pence as president. <laughs> well, no, I think he would be worse, they would say. And I would say yeah. uh, his son is in the Marines. He is a God-fearing, normal American public servant who would defend his oath to the Constitution. He would stand up to the Russians. He would be not running a kleptocracy out of the Oval Office. Are you kidding? You know, it just, it, you were talking about apples and oranges, Charlie. How do these people not understand that without the system, we have nothing? The policy debates are a luxury for later when you have a strong system. If you do not understand the gift of Liz Cheney at this perilous moment, if you do not understand what she is showing us and giving us, you don't understand how much trouble the system is. Because without it, we can't talk about abortion or climate or anything else that they want to talk about. It just says it all. I'm trying to figure out, you know, where some of this stuff comes from. And obviously some of it just comes from, you know, people who are partisan hacks or the ideological warriors, and they're going to put that ahead of anything. But also there was a couple of pieces over the weekend where people contrasted the prominence of and the eloquence of Liz Cheney to Joe Biden. The fact that she's in, in many ways overshadowing Joe Biden in the fight to save d democracy, which leads me to the whole Joe Biden thing. This disillusionment with, with Biden is extraordinary to watch how many different stories are across all of the media about Democrats who are disillusioned with him, who have decided that he is not rising to the occasion. So I guess the question is, you know, how deep is that feeling that Joe Biden is a failed president among Democrats? Let's leave aside the independents and Republicans, but among Democrats, have they decided that their guy is just not up to it? I think that obviously the progressive left has been disappointed, you know, all along. They started fighting last summer um, with the establishment of the party. 
about the infrastructure bill coming first and they wanted it linked to the social welfare program and you don't have BIF without BBB. And it just went on and on and on. And it brought Biden's polling, uh, his approval ratings way down. Of course, that was right after the Afghanistan withdrawal. That was terrible. But the point is that the party indulged the left in this lengthy fight and it was bad for the party and bad for Biden. And a lot of people in the party who believed that Joe Biden won because he was seen as a centrist Democrat were mad that he indulged the left and that he indulged them for too long. So you have the left mad at him because they're disappointed. You have the centrists, you know, and Schumer indulged them in, in this like long, long dragged out process where Schumer was threatening to put cinema and mansion on the floor on record and all, all this stuff that was just uh, a serious waste of time and weakened the party and weakened the president. Now in 2022, there is a feeling that from the left that Joe Biden is not, you know, continues to not fight hard enough to pass things that, you know, there, there's always urging about bringing Build Back Better back and they have to pass something or they're going to lose the midterms. That comes from the left. And then from the center, I think there's a real dispirited sense of defeat and fatalism setting in because they believe that Joe Biden cannot run again and that Harris cannot win an election and that Joe Biden is hanging on to the prospect of running because he believes that Harris can't win an election and that if Trump runs, he's the only thing standing in the way. And that so there's this sort of mass confusion about the lame duck period and the future open primary. And so the different parts of the party are upset for different reasons, but everybody's upset. And the staff at the White House and the team is dealing with Joe Biden's sort of stubbornness, propensity to drag things out, his indecisiveness, his inability to face his age and all this criticism. And then, of course, they end up usually indulging the left because they want a future in the party after Biden's gone where they think the left will have a big influence. So it's a mess, but in different ways, in different corners. Do you think he runs again? No. You don't? And I don't think he can. Okay. Explain. I think that it's clear that Joe Biden is not very old to be a senior citizen, but to be president of the United States, an extremely demanding job. And he's done a masterful job, I believe, in uniting the coalition against Vladimir Putin and against the invasion of Ukraine. And he's working very hard to make sure that Putin doesn't take Ukraine and then begin to invade other countries. With COVID, with all the troubles of the economy, a broken supply chain, fighting inflation, it's very, very hard work. And it ages every president. We've seen all the pictures of George W. Bush and Barack Obama growing their white hairs while they were in office. The idea that in 2024, he can start another term is, to me, just beyond the imagination. And I think the best thing for him to do is to make it clear to the public sooner rather than later that he is a lame duck and that he's going to do the best he can to work with Republicans, whether they're the majority in the Senate or not, to fight for his priorities in terms of judges on the court, whatever bills can be passed out of Congress, and to try to elect a Democrat. The problem for him is he's not ready to say he's backing Harris, and he's not ready to say that he's not backing Harris. I think that's a real problem for him. But I do not see how he can run. I, I cannot see how it's possible. Yeah, I mean, the, the moment a president announces he's not running, of course, he becomes lame duck. And when you become a lame duck president, your already diminished standing shrinks close to zero. Obviously, for a 
Biden presidency, the outcome of the midterm elections is going to be crucial. You know that if there is a Republican House, they will impeach him. But I think the Senate is more important because without the Senate, his presidency grinds to a halt. He will not be able to get his judges. There will be no more Supreme Court judges. Um, it's not even clear whether he's going to be able to get uh, ambassadors confirmed. So he he would become, in effect, a lame duck president almost immediately after that if he loses both the Senate and the House. But of course, you know, we haven't even gotten into this, but I think, you know, sort of suggest the Senate looks much brighter for the Democrats than the House. I mean, I really do. I, I am starting to believe that Republicans are going to blow this, are going to blow it in the Senate for the reasons that we've discussed, you know, just too crazy, too unhinged, uh, too arrogant, that they've already begun the overreach and they're going to pay a price for it in the midterms. But who knows? Because it's all about inflation, right? My theory of the case is that the inflation voter comes out no matter what, and it's about finding the other voters. I mean, that is what I believe. If you have Republicans for Shapiro at the gubernatorial level in Pennsylvania, if you have Republicans in Georgia saying, I'm going to vote for Brian Kemp, but I don't know if Herschel Walker is okay. If you have Greitens becoming the nominee in Missouri, Lord forbid, uh, then I think that um, the independent, is it John Wood, mm -hmm. has a really great shot. It's becoming a real open question. I mean, Tim Ryan has a fighting chance in Ohio after the road decision. Polling has been pretty interesting in a red state. You know, he's raising good money. He polls pretty well against Vance. So that would be a turnout question there. I think, again, that Nate Silver says the gubernatorial races and those three marquee spots, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. I mean, if those favor Democrats, it's really good. Fetterman has reached 50 in a poll, doing much better than Oz. You know, Ron Johnson, who is a, a conspiracy-mongering, insurrectionist fool. Um, I know you're an expert on him, so I'll, I'll spare you. You know, you don't have to talk about him today, but that's no. my description of him on the menu today is all of a sudden struggling, you know, and if they, if it they depends nominate who the, the Democrats right person, nominate though. Yeah. I mean that, that, that's where it really depends on uh, control. Of the Senate may depend on who wins the primary, the democratic primary in Wisconsin. Yes. So. I think you're right. Like you for the first time, 10 days ago, I would have said, I mean, all year I've said 53, 47 Republican. And it's, it's only been in the last week and a half that I thought, you know what? If you're Mitch McConnell, you're worried right now. Um, I think so. And, and you know, again, it's part of us trying to figure out what the new rules of politics are, whether things have fundamentally changed, and uh, we're not going to know for some time here. So, A.B. Stoddard, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much today, particularly today. Great to be with you, Charlie. Thank you so much. A.B. Stoddard is associate editor and columnist at Real Clear Politics, and her piece in today's Bulwark is a must read. Thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.